gracious and holy God, we pray and ask your blessing upon us as we study your word. And we pray that today we would encounter you and that you would speak a word of grace to each and every one of us, a word that both comforts us and challenges us and draws us closer to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. Welcome those who are weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Some judge one day to be better than another, while others judge all days to be alike. Let all be fully convinced in their own minds. Those who observe the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. Also those who eat, eat in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while those who abstain, abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. We do not live to ourselves. We do not die to ourselves. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister or you? Why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So that each of us will be accountable to God. I'll go ahead and pause there and just offer a little teaching uh, as Paul begins this with an exhortation to welcome those who are weak in the faith here. Um, that is a reference specifically to those who do not have the confidence to eat anything, perhaps those who are still a little tied to the dietary laws of Torah, who might not know the full freedom they have in Christ. And, and we know that this was an issue for the early church. We can recall the story from Acts of the Apostles, where right before going to welcome Cornelius the Gentile, who is to receive the Holy Spirit, um, Peter has a vision when he's up on a roof and a sheep from heaven descends with all sorts of unclean animals. Uh, and he hears a voice that says, kill and eat. And Peter says, uh, for God forbid it, Lord, I will not eat anything profane. And then, of course, the voice says, um, what God has made clean, you shall not call profane. And of course, here, right, the food uh, is a symbol for the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles are not unclean. They, too, have been cleansed by the gospel. But uh, as an outward and visible sign of that, Peter is able to eat things and to associate with things that previously were deemed unclean. That part of what it means for Christ to be Lord of all means that these restrictions, whether it's overeating shellfish or eating with Gentiles, that they are now lifted. And that to claim one's freedom in Christ is to know this. But there are some in the community who are still. Um, nervous about what they eat and think that it is a matter of conscience and a matter of faith and a matter of what it means to be obedient to God. And so what Paul is basically saying is, look, y'all disagree on what to eat. 
Um, let's not waste our time quarreling over opinions. Who are you to pass judgment on one who sees these things differently from you? For God has welcomed them. And I think this is really important because one of the things that Paul says frequently, not just in Romans, but in many of his epistles, is that we are to have the mind of Christ, that we are to have the same mind. He says, be of one mind in the Lord. And, you know, we moderns hear that and we assume that he means that we are to have a uniform mind, that we're all to get on the same page, that we're to see every issue. Um, through the same lens, to have the same political preferences, the same stances on matters of conscience and all issues. And, and essentially what this chapter does is debunk that and say that's not actually what it means, that the mind of Christ is not a mental stance on some outward issue, but rather has to do with a willingness to empty itself uh, in order to go out in love to the other. And so even though previously Paul has said, be of one mind, here in Romans 14, 5, he says, let all be fully convinced in their own minds. And what I would have us consider is that both of them can be true at the same time, that we can be fully convinced in our own mind what God thinks about certain issues, whether they be political issues or theological issues that I can be convinced in my mind and you can be convinced in your mind and we can be of one mind at the same time because the one mind Paul speaks of is the mind of Christ, a mind that empties itself in love for the other. And, and so essentially, when we get to verse 10, and Paul says, you know, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Um, what he is ultimately critiquing is that um, the church at Rome is not of one mind in the sense that they don't have the mind of Christ, because the mind of Christ does not pass judgment. The mind of Christ dies for his enemies, right? Paul has already established that earlier when he said, rarely will anyone die for a good person? But while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And so whenever we're passing judgment, uh, we don't have the mind of Christ in that moment. And of course, it doesn't um, hurt to remind us that we all will stand before the judgment seat of God, um, that each of us will be judged. And so before we're too quick to sit on the bench and to put the world on trial, um, we do well to remember that we ourselves will stand before the judgment seat of God. And this, of course, brings back previous conversations about the difference between judgment and condemnation, as well as this whole idea of justification, which is that a positive verdict has already been issued over each and every one of our lives. And so um, last week, we looked at Romans 13. And if Romans 13 is about how we relate to the civil authorities, Romans 14 is about how we relate to theological or ideological difference within the church. Do we all need to be on the same page? Is unity the same thing as uniformity? Uh, do we need to have a stance on all moral issues as a church? 
Um, is that how we bring healing and hope to the world? Or is it a little bit more complicated? Does reconciliation sometimes mean that we let people be fully convinced in their own minds about certain things and understand that um, part of the love of God is giving people space to be where they are and to think what they think? Uh, I also love the verse that says, the Lord is able to make them stand. We see this in verse four. And I want to compare that with the gospel we read on Sunday from Advent 1, where Jesus says, be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. And if we go back and we read that passage from Luke, these things is a reference to the worries of this life. And so it kind of raises the idea that perhaps our worry or our concern that someone sees an issue, an issue differently than we do uh, is one of those traps that Jesus slash Luke alludes to. You know, maybe we shouldn't be so concerned how someone sees the world. Uh, and I know that's going to be a difficult thing for many of us, if not all of us. But this idea of standing before the Son of Man in the Gospel of Luke and now in Romans, this is clearly a theme in the early church. And part of the idea of this life is that we are to prepare ourselves to stand before God. And of course, I mean, this is kind of obvious, Paul doesn't state this outright, but it is certainly implied that if our life is to be a preparation to stand before God, you know, maybe just maybe it's a waste of time uh, trying to correct everyone else around us. And I think Paul you know, I think it's fair to say he might agree with that statement. And so um, some questions just to consider when Paul says, let each be fully convinced in their own minds. Um, you know, I, I imagine this is hard for you or for some of us in some places. And so where is this hard for you? And also, where is it liberating? And then also, how do we know the difference between healthy difference and the violation of Christian boundaries, right? Because I think we understand that some differences can be tolerated within the faith, but some differences probably can't be tolerated within the faith. I mean, if any of you say, you know, I don't think murder's that bad, you know, we're animals. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, um, if I can get away with murder, I'm going to go murder someone. That's not a difference that I think can be held within our community. But if you tell me you voted for candidate A and I really like candidate B, I'd be a little foolish to say, you know, that that's a, a significant difference. So how do we know the difference between this is a boundary, this makes us unchristian versus no, the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of grace is that a lot of difference can be held together. So I'll go ahead and stop there and we'll dive into whatever you're thinking about. And we continue with verse 13. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual edification. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So um, part two of Romans 14 is more of the same, but Paul says it pretty explicitly that our resolution is essentially that, you know, let's not put a stumbling block in front of each other. Um, and I kind of like the way that Paul words this, you know, so often uh, we ask ourselves the question of how can we bless someone or how can we make the world a better place? And that's a really valid question, but you know, the other side of that is, how can I not make the world a worse place? Uh, how can I make sure that I'm not making someone's life more difficult, someone's faith more difficult? How can I make sure that I myself am not a stumbling block for another human? You know, forget doing good. Let me just limit the badness that comes into being mm -hmm. in and through how I live my life. And, and I think both questions are valid, but um, it does raise questions about you know, are there things that we do that are a stumbling block or a hindrance to other people? And of course, this brings to mind Jesus's words in Matthew 18 about how if you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, that you'd be better off if you were thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck. And so Jesus was not too happy about the idea of stumbling blocks either. Um, and essentially what this boils down to is love. You know, if your brother or sister is injured by what you eat, by what you do, you're not walking in love. And, you know, this is a very interesting idea that what makes an act ethical or unethical, um, at least sometimes, is what is the impact it is going to have on the people around us? Um, you know, is it morally wrong? to sit in our home and to have a scotch? No. Is it questionable if we invite a recovering alcoholic over to our home and drink a bunch of scotch? Well, that, that changes the moral calculus, right? Uh, is what we do going to injure someone else? Is it wrong to have a political opinion? No. Is it questionable to share that opinion in front of someone we know who will be triggered by it? Maybe, it's, at least it changes the calculus, it changes our discernment. And so the question so often is, will someone be injured by what I do? And I think that's a wonderful question to ask, especially in light of verse 19, when Paul says that our goal, our job uh, is to pursue peace and what makes for mutual edification. You know, do not for the sake of something trivial, the example Paul uses is food because that's the relevant issue for his community, but don't for the sake of something small, 
destroy the work of God, right? Don't fixate, don't cling to something small, something insignificant and destroy the work of God. Um, and then verses 22 and 23, the faith you have, have as your own conviction before God. I think it's important just to name a paradox that's present in Pauline theology. Uh, on the one hand, there is only one body. And Paul is very clear. There is one body. Um, and, you know, we don't get to be in like the body of our choice. There's one body of Christ. And uh, we are a member of that one body. And so there is not that sense of separation and individualism um, that our culture prizes so much, that rugged autonomy, that rugged individualism that is automatically ruled out by Paul. There is one body. We are accountable to each other. We depend on each other. But then, you know, the, the other side of the paradox is that there are many members and each member has its own function. And, you know, there is a sense in which this cultural value of autonomy and being unique, that it really does have biblical roots, um, that there is a sense in which we must be our unique self, that there is, you know, a part that only we can play in the body of Christ. I don't think that that is, um, you know, sentimentality from the culture. I really believe that. And so, when Paul says the faith you have, have as your own conviction before God, that the, the paradox we hold is that we're not separate. There's only one body. We are interdependent. We do rely on each other. Uh, we are one, one body, one spirit. And yet, uh, in order to bless and nourish the body of Christ, we have to be our unique self. We have to live out our unique call. We can't copy someone. Um, I can't copy your faith. You can't copy my faith. There is mutual edification, as Paul says in verse 19. We can grow and learn from each other, but we have to have our own faith before God. And so important is this. In verse 23, Paul says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is truly amazing if you think about it, right? Sin is not defined here as the breaking of a law. It's not defined as moral disobedience. It's not defined as a thou shall or a thou shalt not, but it's actually defined by are you acting from faith in any given moment? Are you acting from a sense of trust in any given moment? And what this kind of opens up the possibility of is that even if you do the wrong thing, but you do it from the right place, it's not quote unquote sin. And if you do the right thing, but do it from the wrong place, it could be a sin, right? Sin here is defined as any action that does not proceed from faith. That Greek word is pistis, which means trust. And so we're not talking about faith, like intellectual ideas of, you know, what we believe in our head, but rather how we act with our heart. And any given moment, does an action flow from an awareness that we are dependent on God, that we've been saved by God, that we're a member of a body accountable to each other? but that we have our own unique gifts to offer? Does it come from that place? Or does it come from what Paul earlier has called the works of the flesh, right? And so the morality of an action here is, does it proceed from faith? And um, so I'm going to go ahead and, and pause there, and we'll just see kind of what you're thinking about part two of Romans 14.